Welcome to my podcast, Aging with Grace, designed for anyone who wants to enjoy the journey of a lifetime after age 55. This series provides useful tips, not only for taking care of yourself, family, and friends, but also how to enjoy life more abundantly than many even thought possible for people ages 55, 65, 75, and beyond. Some of our guests are doing what many listeners only dream about or maybe even never thought possible. So relax, enjoy their stories on this unique lifestyle podcast, and be prepared to share your own along with hearing useful tips and vital information for everyone aging with grace. In this episode, Dr. Demetra Antimasarius discusses important polypharmacy, which is most commonly defined as the use of five or more medications daily by an individual. Then hope you enjoy part two of an interview with Kenya Whitfield discussing services provided by Hospice. Episode six concludes with the story of a dreamer who tasted sour defeat long before ever savoring the sweet taste of success. Earlier this week, I was um, driving down a city street and had the unfortunate pleasure, if you will, of getting stuck behind someone who was riding his brakes, constantly pumping his brakes as we uh, traveled from stop sign to stop sign. And then finally, as we got on the open open road, he still uh, was pumping his brakes and traffic was backing up behind him. And finally, I had a chance to pass him. And uh, looked over, and the driver had a white knuckled death grip on the steering wheel at the one o'clock and eleven o'clock position. And so I began to think about it. His hand was on the wheel, eleven o'clock and one o'clock. He was trying to be as safe as he could. He was pumping his brakes, riding his brakes, actually, not even pumping them for several safe city blocks. And so I began to reflect on life. You know, how many of us are riding the brakes? between destinations in life? How many of us are, are just kind of, um, you know, pumping the brakes and uh, just not really going anywhere, just basically getting along, if you will? And, and I thought about this, and I thought the lack of progress for some of us could be simply fear. I mean, you have other reasons, I'm sure, but fear comes to mind as the primary reason as to why people ride their brakes in life. And yes, fear plagues all of us from time to time, and fear requires taking some degree of risk. So if I don't try anything, then nothing bad could happen, right? I mean, if I try this, I could die. Well, try it. You're not going to (laughs) die. Because the fact is, to find some degree of happiness and success, uh, instead of being scared to death, maybe try, consider being scared to life. Whenever you listen to this new podcast, it will always be a new day. Scared to life simply means focusing on being alive every single day. So let's try this. Let's try living instead of scared to death, scared to life. And what a change it would make for the majority of us to wake up focused on simply being alive. Imagine the change, being scared to life, what changes that makes possible. What do you have to lose by not 
being scared to life, right? You're going to remain in stasis. You're going to remain where you are being afraid. So why not try, instead of being scared to death, be scared to life? So here's the thing that stops us, I submit, from embracing change, from doing something different. President John F. Kennedy once said, every accomplishment starts with the decision to try. Every accomplishment starts with the decision to try. So let's make a decision to stop riding the brakes in the amazing journey of life. Let's make a decision to seize opportunities, no matter how small or large they may be, no matter how many ages young you may be at heart. At the end of the day, scientific research supports a promise of renewed energy generated by simply focusing on the gift of life which is never to be taken for granted, never to be wasted, never to be treated carelessly. So moving forward, no fear. Release the brakes. Instead of being scared to death, let's agree to being scared to life. Records of prescribing and dispensing medication have been found from ancient Greece, dark ages of the 12th to the 9th centuries B.C., to the end of antiquity, AD, circa AD 600. Records of prescribing and dispensing medication were also discovered in China's Han Dynasty in 200 BC and the Islamic Golden Age in Iraq from the 8th to the 14th century. Modern day pharmaceuticals have exploded and it's a multi billion dollar international industry. And so, listeners, while I'm taking time to kind of share a little bit of the history, I think it's important to set the table that when we're talking about pharmaceuticals, when we're talking about pharma, about polypharmacy, that that has been around for quite a while. It's not necessarily anything new. Matter of fact, it almost predates man. If you're going all the way back to Greece, the end of antiquity, AD 600, the China's Han Dynasty in 200 BC, you see it's been around for a while, right? So the question now is, how do we as consumers interact with such a complex industry? This segment of my podcast, made possible in collaboration with Kentucky AARP, includes a discussion of medical literacy, over-the-counter meds, and other topics that seniors and, um, you know what, probably everyone, right, needs to be aware of. So our next guest is Dr. Demetra Antimisarius. She is the director of the Fraser Polypharmacy Program at the University of Louisville. She is also associate professor, U of L Schools of Public Health and Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Antimisarius, to Aging with Grace. How are you today? Fantastic on this snowy, cold, icy day. Indeed, indeed. Polar vortex outside, but nice and warm inside. Plus, you got a warm personality. So we're going to hope our podcast listeners will pick up on that as much as I have and enjoyed it. Dale, I want to thank you for going over the history. That is an important part of why we have polypharmacy today. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think when we first met, uh, one of these staggering statistics that you had shared with me was that um, the number of medical deaths uh, account for a staggering number of about 285,000 a year. I guess it was what, 275,000 in 2016. I guess, you know, if we're looking at medications, it's prescribed 
is that really true? I mean, that's a staggering number of people succumbing to medical medication-related deaths. Mm-hmm. That is a staggering number. And what's really even more interesting is that those are deaths due to well-intended medication use. That's not due to um, risky medication use or abuse of medications. That's due to well-intended medication use. And that would place medication-related mortality as third in leading causes of death if the CDC counted medications as a cause of death, right behind heart disease and cancer. So you're saying the CDC does not count it as a a cause of death? No, and that's why um, I think that that's why it's not really on people's radar. You know, usually CDC counts um, you know, Alzheimer's, diabetes, the, the chronic diseases, mm-hmm. it does count accidents. And interestingly, accidents have gone from the 10th leading cause of death in 2015 up to the fourth leading cause of death. And that's mainly due to opioid uh, accidents and, and prescription abuse. Wow. We'll talk about the the uh, prescription abuse, but I think as part of your Fraser Polypharmacy program, uh, one of your tenants is medication literacy. Can you kind of walk us mm-hmm. through what is medication literacy and why that is important? Yes. Um, today, medication literacy is super important because going back to the history that you mentioned, mankind has always used medications to treat and therapeutics. They've used herbs and, um, you know, all kinds of things. But modern manufacture of medications really started in the 1950s. We did not have the mass commercialization of medications before then. So it used to be that your doctor was pretty much your, um, like your navigator in terms of medication use. Mm -hmm. Or if you were sick, you'd go into the pharmacy and they'd whip up something for you special for you. But right now, what we have are medications that are made for the masses. So it's upon your shoulders to understand what you're taking. And and I know that sounds really harsh, but you have to understand that in the 1950s, there was something called the learned intermediary rule. Mm -hmm. And that learned intermediary was the doctor. And what that did was absolve the manufacturing company, like the pharma company, of liability. The liability fell upon the doctor then. But the doctor now has only 15 minutes with you. The, the average uh, medical appointment is only 15 minutes. And so if you've got 10 medications, do the math. You know, nobody's really looking at the whole cocktail. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem is you yourself really have to have medication literacy to safely use medicines. You know, it's interesting you should say the short amount of time because I'm sure the, the um, consumer uh, index indicates where people, uh, one, of the th- one of their touch points is the amount of time that you wait to see your doctor. And then when your doctor's there, he or she is only there for a few minutes before they have to move on to the next patient because that's what the system Uh, the hospital systems are requiring they're they're allocating them x amount of time yeah and yeah like they can't keep the doors open if they don't do that yeah because that's their model right that's their financial model uh i had uh back surgery uh three years ago and i remember my uh neurosurgeon came in he said hello mr josie how are you good well listen today we're going to do this this and this you have any questions no okay i'll see you i'll see you in a few weeks at surgery okay and he was out the door and I promise you, the conversation went just like that. 
And I almost felt like I was intruding to ask more details, but thank God for his nurse practitioner who came in and then explained what I was doing. But to your point, Dr. Antimacerius, there's no way he, in prescribing a medication, knew what I was already taking, correct? There's no way he could, he could get that assimilation. Yeah, they can you know, get an idea from the chart, but let's say that you're taking CBD oil on the side and nobody knows that. You know, well, CBD happens to interact with a lot of medic- medicines. So this this is the the problem is that as we grow older, we accumulate more chronic diseases, and then we need more medicines to treat them. But we're using these highly technical medications, these highly technical chemical and biological structures that, to be honest, even I have trouble understanding. You know, I have to work hard all day to understand this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, using a medication is a little bit like driving a car without having driver's training. If you don't take the time to have some medication literacy. Mm-hmm. And there's a few things that people can do to help themselves uh, avoid these bad statistics. Well, give us a f- uh, just a couple of examples. And by the way, as she's giving us examples, uh, we're talking t- with uh, Dr. Demetra Antimisarius. She is the director of the, uh, far- of the Fraser Pharmacy polypharmacy program at the University of Louisville. So uh, Dr. Antimisarius, give us some ideas or examples of what you're talking about. Well, so, um, you know, if you get a new medication um, or any that you're currently taking, you there's a lot of open information online. Like you can go to drugs.com, which is an open source resource to get drug information. But more importantly, they have a drug interaction checker. So you can put in all the medicines you're taking together, and then you can just hit check interactions, and it will give you kind of like a red light, green light, yellow light um, warnings about what's interacting with what and what the rationale is, like maybe what drugs might be making your blood pressure too high if you're taking blood pressure medicines. It's really a handy tool. And also on there, you can find um, like the top three adverse effects of each medicine you're taking. So that's something that I always recommend to people is for whatever you're taking, learn what are the top three effects so that you can't side effects so that you can monitor for it. Mm-hmm. Good suggestion. And that was uh, drugs.com. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's not a commercial for drugs.com, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they are a really good open source uh, resource. There's others, but that one's really simple to use. And I think that's what that's what consumers are looking for, something simple. Because you talk, otherwise, if you think, okay, I've got to go to the PDR, my eyes are going to cross, you know, the physician's <laughs> desk reference. Um, but then are doctors not as part of their training in medical school? Are they not required to study drug interactions? And if so, how long? You know, they are. But here's what has happened. In the past 20, 30 years, the number of products that are out there that they have to work with has, you know, more than tripled, more than quadrupled. Um, the PDR used to be about maybe 1,200 pages, and that included prescriptions and over-the-counters. Today, it's over 3,000 pages and Whoa. with a separate 1,000 over-the-counter book. Oh, my. And that keeps growing. There's about 50 drugs approved new every year, and rarely does something come off the market. So what's happening is not only are the physicians being crunched for time by the reimbursement system, 
but there's no way they can possibly know all this stuff. And, and the good news is that they're learning also medication literacy. They're learning how to use their databases, like, you know, the professional version of drugs.com. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it's, we're in a day and age where you can actually kind of help them, mm -hmm. you know, by. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't mean to cut you off. We can help them by. Oh, just by, by doing some of that legwork yourself and mm -hmm. making sure that when you go in there aware mm -hmm. of things that maybe you noticed in between appointments. It seems like what you're doing is very unique with the Fraser Polypharmacy Program at the University of Louisville. Is that kind of a cutting edge field that you're, uh, that you're in? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, it is unique in the sense that rarely is there any funding to study polypharmacy. Um, most of the funding is to study efficacy of drugs, not how to protect people from harm. Because the efficacy studies are funded by the NIH or by the drug companies, but rarely would somebody fund a, a, a program to study, well, what happens when you mix them all together? Mm -hmm. And we have a local philanthropist here by the name of Frazier, <laughs> who herself was a nurse by training. And I have found that nurses know a lot about medications because they give the medicine, they observe mm -hmm. what happened, and then they record what happened. And she had a personal concern about polypharmacy. And that's how this program started uh, at University of Louisville. Well, that's awesome. She is a, a well-noted philanthropist in our community. And I'm grateful that she has uh, brought you in from Hawaii, I understand. Yes, yeah, she did. People go, why did you come here from Hawaii for a job <laughs> like that? You know, like, well, the reason is there, there aren't, like I said, um, many, um, so there isn't much support Mm -hmm. to do this kind of work. And it's an honor. Well, that's awesome. We're glad you're in our community. And you've been a really, uh, just a, you're adding a lot to our community, not only to the body of knowledge, but just by being here in Louisville. So we love to welcome in new Louisvillians. So if, I'm sure you've already been welcomed many times, but here's my voice in addition to many others, I'm sure. Much appreciated. <laughs> um, so are over-the-counter medications risky? Yeah, this is an important question too, because as time goes on, more and more medications go over the counter. And many of the medications that were um, that are over the counter used to be prescription. So yeah, I don't know why at some point the FDA thought they had to be prescribed under the supervision of a doctor and then now they're over the counter. I don't know, <laughs> but um, somehow that happens. And so they can be very risky. Um, you know, if and that's why it's important to talk to your pharmacist when you're, when you're picking them up, if you have any um, doubts, and add them to your interaction checker on drugs.com. That's, that's good to know. But the FDA, the FDA does closely monitor over-the-counter medications. Yeah, yeah. so, so over-the-counter products that add to polypharmacy include over-the-counter medicines that are FDA-approved for over-the-counter. But then there's supplements, herbs, and vitamins, which are not FDA regulated. Mm. That opens up another can of worms, potentially, because if you're talking herbs and vitamins, I mean, there's like a plethora of take this, don't take that. If you want this, drop a, here's a pill for that or whatever. Yeah. And but, but there's also anecdotal evidence that some of these uh, uh, herbs and spices, 100 mm -hmm. herbs and spices, uh, I'm not diminished, I didn't mean to offend anybody, but uh, that they do work, right? Uh-huh. 
yeah, your body can't tell the difference between a prescription and a, you know, and a, a herb. Mm -hmm. it, it still considers it what we call xenobiotic, meaning something from outside your body. Mm -hmm. And um, in the old days and today in like Asia and uh, traditional cultures, you know, you've heard of the term food as medicine. Yes. And that's where we get our herbal practices from. You know, mm -hmm. over the over the generations, people realize that if you consume certain things, they have certain effects. You have been listening to Dr. Demetra Antimasarius, who leads the Fraser Polypharmacy and Medication Management Program at the University of Louisville. Next, we have part two of our interview with Kenya Whitfield discussing services provided by Hospice. You indicated that the earlier people call you, the better. Uh, mm -hmm. So is there an ideal time frame from the onset of diagnosis through the treatment cycle that people should engage hospice? Yes. Um, and what we tell people is as soon as you get that diagnosis, you could reach out to us. That is great because Medicaid has where when the patient is diagnosed with a terminal illness, they automatically get the six month paid. Um, so it's an it's, it's better if they can get the full six months of that benefit, get affairs in order, get, get a, the benefit of the social worker, the nurse, and the entire team um, for that six months. With that being said, many people ask, well, I mean, if Med Medicaid is only going to pay for six months, what do I do after those six months? Because like I said earlier, a lot of our patients do live past that. Um, as long as you have a terminal diagnosis, we can keep reevaluating you and you will continue to stay on service. Um, I know there's a few patients on our caseload now that have been on there at least over two years. Mm -hmm. But so, I also tell people too that, you know, there are some key things to look for because a lot of people are like, well, I don't know, you know, when to navigate or when to, you know, actually call hospice or what it, what it is should I be looking for? Because a lot of times, you know, you might not necessarily see your doctor yet, but you're, you know, experiencing certain symptoms. And I tell people to look for with the patient um, frequent hospitalizations in the past six months. Um, if you're seeing like progressive weight loss, that's a key factor that you might need hospital services. Um, increasing weakness, fatigue, um, and then like a change in their cognitive and functional abilities, and then a decrease of their ADL. So if you notice that they're not eating as much. They're not, they can't really bathe themselves. They're having trouble dressing or toileting. Those are key factors to look for to call hospice. And then like recurring infections, skin breakdown, um, and just overall, just a change in the way they used to be. Let me ask you a question. When you mentioned the uh, six, did you say six month or well, mm -hmm. the six month cycle? Um, mm -hmm. Can you check in, check out? In other words, can you be a program graduate? You only use maybe two months, and then later this year, I'm back in. Or is it a or at once you're in, you're in, and that's it. In terms of that six months, does that connect extend over multiple visits or treatments? It like does, that? it does. And then I know um, we've seen too some patients get on services, and let's just say a new drug was invented, and they want to try something else. You know, maybe other than hospice care. They can, we can discharge them. They can do what they need to do, whether it be rehab or anything that they might want to do during that time. And then you can come back. So I tell people, I said, you know, once you get on service services, it's your choice to stay on. 
you always have the option to get off. There's other treatments you'd like to pursue. Mm -hmm. When you talk about get on services, what are Mm -hmm. some of the services uh, that hospice provides? I saw Uh, something called uh, Courageous Kids, for example. Yes, um, the Courageous Kids program, that's our pediatric program. And what that program entails is that um, we take care of pediatric patients that have um, a diagnosis that's going to be a terminal illness. And this program was actually founded in 1980. Um, And it's one of the oldest programs in in the country. And um, it's one of the only pediatric palliative and hospice programs in Kentucky. Um, And with our courageous kids, each year um, we care for over 135 children. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's one of our best programs and also one of the hardest for me, because, you know, when you see children, you expect them to be healthy and thriving, but that's not always the case. And so we're blessed to have a company like ours, Hospice, to take care of those children and help lead their parents in the right direction and help them take care of that illness. Mm-hmm. Would these be young people or children who were born with terminal illness or they acquired disease or what's the, what's been the, they can be, know? it's, it's actually several things. They can be born with a terminal illness. Um, there was another patient. She actually acquired a terminal illness when she was 16. She got on services. So it just depends as long as they're a pediatric patient, it can be at any time. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean that they were born with it. But if they acquire later in life, they can also get on our services. So am I to understand or our, our listeners uh, to understand that basically Hospice is a one-stop shop that you have like six or seven different uh, what you call uh, services? That's, is yes. that fair? Can you kind of give us that, an overview? Yeah, is, yes. And the, uh, so one of the other services we have is palliative care. And what I really like about the palliative care program, because we were seeing that there were patients that were on the cusp of hospice care, but really didn't need hospice services. And at that point, we really didn't have anything for them. But when palliative care came along, they were able to get on palliative care. And palliative care are, is for patients with serious or chronic illness. And um, it's, it's usually symptoms that they're not able to manage with their condition. And um, usually with our palliative care patients, those patients will be on services longer. And um, also with palliative care, you can have palliative care and you can also do rehab and skill care at the same time, which is not the case with hospice care. Um, With palliative care, we've noticed, too, our patients who are on palliative care, they are able to be monitored. And when it is time or if it ever does come time for hospice care, our nurses are able to identify that sooner because they're already monitoring with the palliative care services. Mm -hmm. So, again, that goes back to the sooner someone can contact hospice mm-hmm. the, and the more the they can have, the better. And they can. And mm-hmm. you, I think you had a tagline. You said the earlier you call, the better. Yeah, the earlier you call, the more we can help. And mm-hmm. as we um, continue our discussion, we have a few more minutes with uh, Ms. Kenya Whitfield, who is the uh, phys- director of physician relations with hospice. Um, Kenya, you know, we're talking here where we, in terms of where we are in terms of Kentucky. But mm-hmm. if someone, and this is a national podcast, so if someone is, for example, in Arizona, how do mm-hmm. they access Hospice? Is it a national movement? Are there area chapters? Or how does that, what's your network? And actually, Hospice is a local nonprofit, but um, 
we have been well-versed in meeting the other hospices, nonprofit and for-profit. And our CEO, Phil Marshall, has developed great relationships with all the hospices throughout the country. He's even uh, gone over different, you know, different countries and developed those relationships as well. But Wolf's a lot name, of time, yeah. I'm sorry, Wolf's Phil name. Marshall, our CEO is Phil Marshall. Got it. Okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times for us referrals, once you put in hospice or, you know, hospice services, Kentucky, usually it'll pop up um, to show that, you know, you can refer hospice in Kentucky, but also with our partnerships with other hospices around the state, different states and countries, a lot of times we get direct referrals from those hospice organizations. They call us directly. Mm-hmm. And it's an easy, it's an easy uh, transition. Once you're on hospice care, let's just say in Arizona, we transfer you over to hospice care in Louisville, Kentucky. There's a little bit of paperwork, but it's, it's a very easy transition. But we work well with other hospices. That's excellent. So there is a continuum of care once you get on yes. services. It mm-hmm. is, uh, and for our listeners, is it as simple as going to www.hospice.org? Is that fairly Yes, that's all you, yeah, that's straightforward. That's all you have to do. And then it pretty much lists, you know, everything about hospice care and how you can sign up for services. Mm-hmm. Kenya, when, um, one of the points I wanted to circle back around to earlier, you had mentioned a uh, 41 county footprint. And mm-hmm. that uh, whether you're in a city or in a rural area of the state, mm-hmm. um, you guys can get to us. You can get to patients, right. you need, uh, your, your services. Um, how have you engaged with rural families versus urban families? Or is grief grief and no respecter of where you find it? Actually, I found throughout the years, I've been here six and a half years I feel grief is grief. And actually, I found that it's a universal language. And um, the good thing about hospice and what I really liked about hospice, no matter where you live, we're going to meet you where you call home. So even if you're homeless, we will even take care of you if you're homeless. So I really like that about because some people say, well, if I'm at home, can you still have hospice services? Yes. If I'm in a nursing home, will you still come there? Yes. If you're in a rural county, will you take care? Yes. Anywhere you call home, hospice is going to come take care of you. That's very comforting, you know, especially mm-hmm. when we, we were talking in the beginning about life being a terminal experience. It sounds like mm-hmm. you, we have a partner all the way down the line. And speaking of partners, uh, you're a director of physician relations. And I'm wondering, I'm curious, have you found in terms of your experience, general practitioners, uh, mm-hmm. are, or, or how do they approach the end of life? Because, I mean, you take the Hippocratic Oath that we have to do all mm-hmm. we can, right? So right. have you found different practices of physicians more open, if you will, to hospice care versus others? Yes, I find with our cardiologists and our oncologists, they tend to be not even more open, but they tend to refer a little bit earlier. Um and really across the different lines, even with our primary care, from time to time, I'll see that they refer as well. But sometimes it tends to be a little bit later uh, in the diagnosis. Um, I found that it seems like they tend to, you know, hold them a little bit longer before they actually refer. And that's why with my new position, I have tried and, and continue, I will continue to, you know, to educate the physicians and let them know the earlier you call, you know, the quicker that you refer, the more we can help. And I mean, I feel like I, I say that on a daily basis and 
um, our oncologists and cardiologists can speak to that because um, they really seem to get it and know that, okay, if we get in there earlier, we really see the benefit of it. And I also tell people um, and our doctors as well that if you identify a patient, you can call me and make the referral and I will be the one to get everything set in stone and get the ball rolling for is the referral. Um, I can even do an EOS, which is an explanation of services to go out and talk to that patient and family. Because a lot of times too, people are scared when they hear the H word. When they hear mm-hmm. hospice, it mm-hmm. terrifies them. And even if their doctor is, I've even found too, with a lot of our practitioners, they do encourage these patients, you know, they refer them and encourage them to get on hospice services But these families are scared, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I tell those practitioners, if you do run into that situation, let me do an EOS. Let me talk to them and, you know, tell them about our services in a more gentle way and then actually let them know what they're getting into. Because I know it's a scary time. It would would scare me if I went to the doctor and they said, hey, we're referring you to hospice. So Mm -hmm. um, we found those EOSs have been very helpful as well and kind of gets rid of some of that fear that the patients and the families are having. And it also takes the burden off the doctors. They don't even have to do the conversation. We can do it for them. Mm -hmm. And you're saying ELS stands for? EOS is Explanation Mm -hmm. of Services. Explanation of Services. And I gather Mm -hmm. doctors would like that because, as you said, it takes the onus off of them. And Mm -hmm. you guys have have done this. And this has just been, um, Kenya, I've thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Um, I like what you guys are doing with Hospice Health. And it gives not only us who are talking about it and learning about it, but I think it provides hope for everyone who understands, as I said at the outset of our, of our interview, that life is a terminal experience. Yes. And, you know, I, I, one of our nurses, she described it. She said, you know, and I love the way she put it. She says, in life, we, you know, we have our weddings, we have births, and all the preparation that we do when the babies come in, we prepare for, you know, nine to 10 months for wedding. We might prepare for years with that. But with death, we don't do that same preparation. And hospice services is trying to help people prepare for that. Just the same way that we prepare for other life events. That's so good. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time, folks. We've, we've had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Kenya Whitfield. She's the Director of Physician Relations for uh, Hospice. And Kenya, you mentioned a moment ago your phone number real quick. Do you want to use your 800 number or your cell number? What are you comfortable with? Um, I usually give out my cell phone number. Really? But okay. I, well, I do sometimes. Well, let me do, let me do the 1-800 number. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah, let's do so, 1-800-264. Yeah, let's do the 1-800 <laughs> Yeah, when you said yeah, your cell, I think... Yeah, I'm and like, actually I do. And you and believe it or not, I get phone <laughs> calls all throughout the night. But I in the reason I know it sounds odd, but the reason I do sometimes give out my cell phone number is because you never know when a crisis is gonna happen. It doesn't always happen from nine to five. And so I get those calls in the middle of the night and you know, we we say we're, we get started on services whenever time they need it. But let me give the one eight hundred number. It's one eight hundred one eight hundred two six four. Oh five two one. 1-800-264-0521. And mm-hmm. I'm sure your husband appreciates you giving the uh, 1-800 number two instead of your <laughs> cell phone. But the caveat is once you establish the relationship, folks, then you will get Miss Whitfield's cell phone number as she yes, and her team will. are always available to, um, to provide those much-needed mm-hmm. services. Kenya, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for your time. And for our listeners, um, 
we'd like to get your feedback on this whole concept that we've been talking about for the last uh, few minutes, uh, shoot me an email. Send me an email at D-A-L-E at awg55.com that's dale at awg55.com you can also visit our website which is awg55.com thank you so much kenya to you and your team with uh, hospice and i certainly hope uh, we'll have a chance to visit again and i then, know and uh, thank you for having us on i really enjoyed doing this and getting the well, information out well, you're very welcome. You're delightful to talk to. You've been a great guest. And folks, uh, I appreciate you spending some time with us to learn more about Hospice Health. And uh, we look forward to uh, another broadcast in the future. Have a great day. You too. For listeners of my podcast, you know, I always like to include an inspirational story, something that um, maybe you haven't read about or heard of. But you can also share it, or um, I guess we call it pay it forward. Maybe somebody else would also enjoy hearing the following story about a young man who lived from 1857 to 1945. You see, before any of his own businesses flopped, Milton had a front row seat to his father Henry's seemingly endless business disasters. His father Henry chased after ideas and just had some spectacular business failures because he was a dreamer. He was a dreamer. But this variety of failures was truly spectacular. And there was one after another in which Milton's father, Henry, he continued to lose money. He continued to lose money while he dabbled in, I'm going to be a successful farmer. Nah. I'm going to try mining silver. Uh-uh. And then I'll try secondhand junk dealing. Because surely as a secondhand junk dealer, I can make quick cash. Because remember, Henry was about making money as quickly as he could. And then when he was collecting secondhand junk, on one truly unfortunate occasion, you're going to love this one. He filled the basement with canned tomatoes, intending to sell them at a later date. But remember chemistry 101, that thing called fermentation? Yeah, it took over, and the tomato cans fermented and exploded. Henry wanted to get rich quick, but he only got poor even quicker. Until in his 80 years, elderly years, his far more accomplished son, Milton, was able to bail him out. You see, his son, Milton, he um, he enjoyed a normal, happy childhood. And when he was 15, he became an apprentice to a candy maker a job he loved from the very first day. And four years later, he opened his own candy store. Milton absolutely loved candy, and it was a sweet dream that he just couldn't give up. You get it? Sweet dream? Okay, moving on. Anyway, so he's got this candy store, right? And But the long hours that it took to build a business took their toll. And Hilton was forced to close his business because of his failing health. But he refused to give up on his singular idea that he could be a successful candy maker. So at age 26, Milton moved to New York to work again in a candy store. And this time, he was a delivery man. And as we continue our story, remember the period 
1857 to 1945. But in that period, 1857 to about 1908, 1910, you had horse-drawn carriages. So against this backdrop, Milton was a delivery man, and his horse bolted one day and spilled his wagon of candy, and Milton was, yeah, fired. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're going to do, right? I mean, you lost the stock. Everything's out in the street. The kids are running over, grabbing it. People saying, get away from that candy. I don't miss my candy. Nah, that's not a career move. Not a good career move. So he moved back home to Pennsylvania. Now, since candy making was the only occupation that interested Milton, he rented an abandoned factory, taking all of his own money and putting it into one last shot making his own candy. At first, he made only caramel, but then machinery made it possible to mass-produce chocolate. So he switched to chocolate and began to mass-produce chocolate. And have you guessed yet who this young man was? Any ideas out there? Well, we're going to tell you exactly who Milton's last name was. If you have tried guessing it so far, any takers yet? Hershey. Yeah, that's his last name. Milton Hershey broke ground for his first chocolate factory. And within a few years, he was a millionaire. I don't know about you, but I love Hershey candy, right? And not only do I love it, and not only do many of you love it, but today, the famous Hershey Chocolate Company is one of the largest and most successful chocolate manufacturers in the world. Yeah, they posted a measly, not really, $8 billion in sales in 2019. $8 billion in sales in chocolate. Because one young man, despite seeing spectacular failures of his father, despite some serious setbacks of his own, I think it's worth noting that the founder of this great company tasted failure before he ever enjoyed the flavors of success. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes to listen to my podcast, Aging with Grace 55 Plus, presented in collaboration with Kentucky Chapter AARP. Keep in mind, aging is a lifelong process, but if you choose to see new possibilities, you will find them every day. Aging is not a time of diminishment, but applying lessons taught by some of our best teachers, including experience. I'd love to hear from you. So reach out to me, dale at awg55.com by email, or visit our website, awg55.com. And now for a last thought for the day, good habits make time your ally, bad habits make time your enemy. So until next time, this has been Dale Josie, host of Aging with Grace.